So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 19 through 34, or 35. That is the section that, uh, that Russell has given me. If you have not picked up one of the Mark books, I know we still have some on that back table. Take one of those. Make sure you're taking notes, following through. It's a great little way to, to work through it. But this week in Mark chapter 3, we see that, that Jesus needs to make some tough decisions. All right? Um, Jesus is facing a crisis, and, and, and as the leaders of Israel want to kill him, all right? And so it's all kind of boiling up, and, and Jesus decides because of this he needs to, to appoint more people to carry out his message. Jesus chooses 12 ordinary men, and we know those men as the apostles. And, and Jesus and his apostles, they come back into town to find crowds waiting on them. And, and we're going to see something that Mark likes to do in his gospel. Mark likes to sandwich one story in the middle of another. So if you read it this week, you might have thought, uh, what is going on here? He had a thought, and then he changed, and then he changed back. That is very common for Mark. By doing this, Mark not only demonstrates a relationship between the two stories, but by combining the two stories, he makes a new point. And what is that point? Let's find out. Let's look at this together. If it's convenient for you, let's stand as we read Mark chapter uh, 3, 19 through 35. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons. He cast out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against him, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against him and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven and the children of man and whoever blasphemies uh, they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for this time you've given us. God, I ask that you be with us as we look at your text. God, allow it to open our eyes and uh, for us to look at the things that, that we can learn from, from your word. God, we're thankful for all the blessings you give us. Within your sons and we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Remember I told you just a while ago, Mark presents us with a very interesting sandwich of passages in the second chapter of three, or in the second half of chapter three. He starts by talking about the family of Jesus coming to him. Then he interrupts the story with, with enemies of Jesus accusing him of being in the league with Satan. 
And then he follows that with Jesus responding creatively to his accusations. And then to his family and the final part. In the text, we see that Jesus' family, they thought he was crazy, right? He went home. The crowd gathered again. They could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. They were saying he was out of his mind. You know, Mark tells us many people were gathered around Jesus and that he and his apostles could not even eat. And so as the crowds grew bigger, the tensions grew, and as you can probably imagine, it made a lot of people uncomfortable. When Jesus' family heard about what was going on in verse 21, they went out to seize him. I want you to notice a few things about, uh, about his family in these verses that I think should stick out to us. First, they say that Jesus is out of his mind. They're basically saying that Jesus is mad or that he is insane. And you might be surprised that, that Jesus' family didn't believe him here. But we find in other passages that also indicate that he did not believe. We see in John chapter 7, verse 5, his, his family say, for even his brothers believe, or for not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers are saying, hey, we, we don't believe in him. We don't believe in what he's doing. And this is a good reminder for us when we follow Jesus. I was thinking about this this week, and, and there's been times in my life, even when, uh, when I was a teenager, where I had this come into play, not necessarily family, but I had people that I worked with uh, when I had a job that, that did not believe in God, and they thought I was crazy for believing in him. This is a good reminder for us that when we follow Jesus, some people are going to think you're crazy. As with Jesus, it may even be members of your own family. It could be someone that you work with. When we are in, in these times, though, you and I, we need to remember that we have already chosen a side, right? We've chosen to follow Christ no matter what. We've made that decision. And with Jesus' family, I really do think that they, you know, their intentions were well. That They only want what's best for their son, right? Or their brother, but through their actions, I think we see a lack of faith in Jesus. We see a lack of faith in, their, in his mission. Unfortunately, Mark stops the story <laughs> right there. He stops the story of Jesus' family at this point, and he inserts another piece of this sandwich as he suddenly switches gears, and he talks about this confrontation that's come into play. And if you're like me, you're like, no, I want the rest of the story. Why did you do that? But that's not what he does. See, apparently word about Jesus had gotten out to Jerusalem. And, and the teachers of the law, they start to investigate him. And I really think it's because they realize he really says who he is. They didn't want to believe it, right? But we see in the text that the, the religious leaders are accusing Jesus. They thought Jesus was demon-possessed, right? They, they, they said he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. I totally missed that section, but that's fine. Um, and so that's what's going on here. So the scribes are accusing him of two things, and one of these is pretty important. First, they accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebul. Now, if you're like, what does that mean? That's a word that I had to go listen to on my computer uh, on the Bible app so I could say it correctly, and I probably am still saying it wrong. But this is a big word, because this accusation that they're making, 
is far worse than what his family is saying when they say that he is crazy. This Beelzebul word is another name for Satan in those days. And so they were not just saying that Jesus was possessed by a demon. They're actually saying Jesus is Satan himself. It's pretty big, right? Second, they accuse him of driving out demons by the prince of demons. Now, Jesus has a reputation for casting out demons, right? We've already seen this. He's done this. We've seen several examples of this. So what are the scribes and teachers of the law doing here? Here's what they're trying to do. They're, they're trying to discredit Jesus. They're trying to destroy his reputation, right? I told you, he comes into town and there's this massive crowd that has showed up, and that's making them a little nervous. They cannot deny his ability to cast out demons, but they can cast doubt on the source of his power. So basically, we can assume that, that they don't believe Jesus is from God. They don't believe he is from God. And yet, he has supernatural powers. So what are they trying to do? They're trying to say, he's Satan. And in typical Jesus fashion, I love this, um, you know, he, he's going to respond to these accusations. And what we see in verse 23, how does he respond? He responds in a parable, right? Typical form, a parable. Take note that Jesus first called them to himself. I think that's kind of interesting when you look at the text. He's calling the scribes to him, the teachers of the law to him. It is though they were maybe making these accusations behind his back. They weren't making these accusations face to face to him. So he calls them forward to address to them, and he speaks to them in a parable. And in this parable, he responds to both the accusations, but he responds to the second accusation first, which is that he drives out demons by the prince of demons, if you look there in 23 through 26. So if Jesus is counting out, or casting out demons by the power of Satan, this is interesting, then Satan is fighting against himself. You get that? If Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan, then Satan is fighting against himself. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? If that's true, it makes no sense at all. I mean, that would be like Dak Prescott, okay, doing a quarterback sneak, running it up the middle, and about to score a touchdown, and C.D. Lamb tackles him, and they lose the game. That doesn't make sense, does it? Maybe that was too soon after last week. But you get the point, right? It doesn't make sense. It wouldn't make sense for them to lose the game that way. Crazier things have happened, but it doesn't make sense. Jesus is telling the teachers of law, what you are saying doesn't make sense. How can Satan drive out Satan? A team has to work together. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, then he cannot stand. His end has come. And that's Jesus' answer to the second accusation. And then he goes back to the first. He goes back to the first accusation in, in uh, verse 27, that he is possessed by Beelzebub. And, and what he says here is, is this, and, and I want you to think about this a second. Uh, I wish I would have got a picture of this, but I forgot to do it. How many of you have seen the A-team? A-team? I know the younger kids are like, I do not know what A-team is. Uh, my favorite character in there is the one that always say, I pity you, fool, right? 
big dude, right? Big guy. So here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine a strong man who is huge and works out. That's what I think of VA. He's big. I don't want to get, come across him. If you're going to rob VA, you can't just walk in and start taking things out of his house, right? What did they do when they wanted to get him on a plane? Anybody remember what they do? Gave him, gave him a, a shot, right? In the back of the neck. They would put him to sleep, right? They had to subdue him. They had to tie him down. And so if you want to do that, you're not going to overpower someone unless you tie them down that's big and strong. But once you do that, then you can rob your house, rob their house. So in this parable, Satan is the strong man, okay? You can't just walk in and start plundering in the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying here. You know, Jesus could, could not be robbing Satan's house by, by casting out demons unless he had overpowered and tied up Satan first. So, in other words, Jesus is, is not controlled or possessed by Satan. Satan is controlled and overpowered by Jesus. Make sense? And then after telling them these parables, Jesus warns and he goes to the teachers of the law, as we see in verses 28 through 30, and, and we talk about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It comes into play. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So there's some good news here, and there's some bad news here when it comes to this text. The good news is, there are all kinds of sins, there are all kinds of blasphemies, uh, that can be forgiven, right? It means that no matter how badly you have sinned against God, God's saying, hey, I, I can still forgive you. And we know that if we're followers of God. He's going to forgive us. But the bad news is this, when you look in verse 29, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of sin, or guilty of an internal sin. So here we come to an unfor unforgivable sin right? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. If all other blasphemies can be forgiven, this must be exceptionally bad to be singled out. At least that's what I thought when I see this in the text. He's singling out as an eternal sin that is beyond forgiveness. So what is exactly is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Mark tells us that Jesus said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit in Mark 30, if you look at it in Mark 30. And so it would appear that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is attributing to the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life to Satan. He's making this connection. And then finally, what's interesting, even after all that, where does he go? He goes back to the very beginning. He goes back to his family Mark returns to the story of his family. If you look at verses in 31 and 32, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. This is very important. We're going to talk about this here in a second. And the crowd were sitting around to him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So Jesus', Jesus family, they finally arrive. They're hearing stories that all these crowds are gathering and, and are coming in on him. And they finally arrive, and remember, they're concerned that Jesus is out of his mind. 
And, and they have come to take charge of him. They send a message to Jesus and, and those in the house to tell him, your mother and brother, brothers are outside looking for you. And well, you would probably expect Jesus to go see them, right? My mom called me or my dad called me and they were outside my house. They said, hey, come see me. I'm going to go see them. That's respectful, right? But he doesn't do that. Here's what he does. And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So first Jesus asks, who are my mother and brothers? Then he answers by pointing at those sitting at the feet, listening to his teacher, his teaching. I'm going to tell you, as I was reading this text and I got to that verse, I just stopped for a second. And I tried to imagine myself in that situation of being at his feet, listening to his teaching. And here's the thing. I don't think Jesus, he's not dismissing or or disrespecting his physical mother or brother here. What he's saying is that there is a family bond among Christians that is even stronger than physical ties. Those who do God's will are are Jesus' true family. And this spiritual family was even more important than his physical family. That's what he's saying here. Jesus is not harsh with his family, as he was with the teachers of the law, right? His family, as, as I said earlier, I believe is showing a lack of faith. And, and they're really starting to interfere with, with his mission. And I think he's just trying to also teach them too as he goes along. As much as Jesus loved his family, his mission must come first. You know, in the same way, we, we are to love our families, right? And, and we are to honor our parents. But God comes first. You know, when you come to Christ, you enter a spiritual family that is forever forever. I will never forget those people that were around me when I first got baptized. I never will. I still have connections with them, and and they're they're my family that I'll always remember. And even though they're part of that, I still know God is ahead of them, and God is the one that I need to be focusing on. When you come to Christ, you enter a spiritual family that is forever, and Jesus' family stood outside calling him away from his mission, and Jesus had to choose a side. And he chose God's side, right? He stayed true to what he was doing. And I think that's ultimately what I get out of Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 tells a story of what happened when these religious authorities and Jesus' own family looked from him from the outside. They weren't ready to come in and have a relationship with that or to understand that. The point Mark was making is what matters in life is when you are sitting at the feet of Jesus doing God's will. That's what I get from Mark chapter 3. You know, this makes you part of God's family when you make that, make that commitment. And you're like, I'm going to sit at his feet and I'm going to do his will. You can't look on the, be on the outside looking in. You have to be at his feet. You have to be willing to do his will. Even when it might seem crazy, even when people are calling you crazy and saying, why do you believe in that? You stay true to who God has made you. 
Maybe this morning you want to truly become part of God's family. By, by making a commitment to him through, through the waters of baptism, we want to help you do that. We want to walk you through that process and, and be there with you to become part of this spiritual family. If that's you, we would love to help you. Maybe this morning you're like, I just, you know what? I have a lot of things going against me. I have a lot of people in my life who think I am crazy because I believe in God. We want to help you with that. Maybe this morning you just need the prayers from this church. Maybe you just need love. We would love to help you with that. We have elders throughout the auditorium. Um, you know, we have members that would be willing to pray for you, but we want to help you through that. This week, my challenge to you is to ask this question. What do I need to do in my life to be part of God's family and to be sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching? Because as I read Mark chapter 3, that was the thing that I highlighted and underlined, saying, that's what I hope that I accomplish in my life. That I'm truly listening to him when everything's against me, when, when people are calling me crazy, that they see that I was still there and I still chose him. Whatever we can do for you, won't you come as we stand and as we sing?